<laughs> I know you got a plethora of notes. It's too much. <laughs> but the people need it, so. Yeah, right, right, right. Um, what did you want to go over and mainly? Uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's up to you. It's just to kind of touch any specific thing. Um, I want to do the generalized nutrition content. So what we would expect to see in seaweeds just across the board. Okay. And kind of let people maybe go from there, see what comes out of that. Okay. Okay. Let me make one change. Then we'll be, we'll be all set to go. Okay. Okay. All right, my man, I got you in. We, we're locked in. Um, once again, my apologies. Just no a hellacious day for me, but um, it's summertime. That from the last time we talked, uh, I, I was inundated with a bunch of questions uh, regarding the sea moss and, and whatever and whatnot. So, if you'd be so kind to go ahead and just bless us one time <laughs> again, <laughs> my pleasure to be back as always. So, we spoke so much last time about just understanding seaweed generally as a nutrition uh, superfood, if you will. And in the last few years, we've recently seen so much promotion around different species, particularly the red algae. Mm -hmm. I think I may have mentioned before, when we talk about seaweed, we have three different types or uh, three different classes. There's the mm -hmm. red, green, and brown. Um, specifically in the red family, the red class is where we see most of our uh, ind industrial use, primary nutritional use. And mostly it's been recorded in the human diet, believe it or not, since like 600 BC. Interesting. When I'm studying, some of the work I study is Chinese medicine. Um, we use the ancient Chinese scripts that go back to about 2,000, 3,000 years old. Um, one of the oldest books, the Materia Medica, has formulations, and some of the formulations in include various red seaweeds. It's no surprise that the seaweed culture is very big in Asia. Uh, seaweed cultivation is something that we see right now. It's been going on since on a large scale, I said the 60s and 70s, I think when we first did our sessions. However, it, the cultivation, the harvesting in general has been going on since the beginning of time. And many different ethnic groups, uh, different people have resorted to specifically, a lot of people probably think about European Irish potato famine resulting to the sea as an alternative for food sources when there were famines, when there were times when we maybe not could get land sources of food mm -hmm. and it served to be very nutritious very valuable i think in farming and agriculture it's also pretty big where it's used in fertilizer a lot of times because of the dense micro and macronutrients we see so the biggest thing is that everybody's pointing out the mineral composition that the seaweeds 
are rich in minerals, which they are. I have many references, many resources. However, there's a lot of other macronutrients that are not being considered like fats, omega-3, omega-6, which is essential for humans, very important for our metabolism of hair, skin, nail function in the body. Mm-hmm. There's also protein, rich, rich, rich sources of protein. A lot of people now have very restricted dietary lifestyles. I see, and they're looking always for alternative sources of protein. So some of the red algaes and the browns too serve to be as great sources because they have a wide array. They have a wide span of amino acid complex profiles. And I can go on so many of them. Additionally, they're rich in carbohydrates. So the carbohydrates are what we call polysaccharides. In other words, those are sugars. And in one specific species, there tends to be a a sugar we see known as galactose or galactins, which are similar to glucose, but the chain of the sugar is a little bit longer. So it takes the body a little bit more to break the molecule down. It's also able to process past the blood brain barrier as an alkali. So it's a source of fuel for the brain. Your brain runs on sugar, mm-hmm. specifically uh, chondrous family of algaes, a red type, a red species is where we see this in. There's a document I shared some years ago about the chemical compositions, the chemical investigations, the chemical breakdown of some of these red algaes. These would be your building blocks, or these would be your foundations to start to expound upon if you're going to try to figure out what you have in this composition where you could go. Ultimately, I use algaebase.org. It's an online database repository that contains, I think there's about 6,000 because we know there's over 6,000 species, but there's also cultivated species as well. So that database has the, the species that are naturally occurring in nature, wild and cultivated ones, and ones which have mutated through nuclear genetic mutation, which have been identified, or things that, that change in the environment that cause those. So understanding that seaweed is rich in protein, carbohydrates, fat, Yes, the mineral composition is there. And it's, it's not, you know, I mentioned before, it's not what we think it is. I believe that the whole concept idea was assimilated to understanding the periodic table of elements. So chemistry, assuming, okay, here's this big chart that shows you everything naturally occurring in the earth. And seaweeds, as we understood, like I said, are very nutritious. So it may have been some assumption at one point that, it's safe to say they got everything in the periodic table elements. When you look at the periodic table elements numerically, you see about 112 to 113 elements naturally occurring in nature, depending upon which chart you look at, depending upon the year. So in 2016, there were some more elements added, but that's when it breaks. It'll, you'll see if you look at a chart, it'll go from like about number 89 and it'll jump to 90 because in between there, there's some, some synthetic elements and then it'll go like 90 up to i think 94 and then 113 and then completely 118 but that's the only correlation that i could logically think of as to where the number i haven't you know i i 
don't like to say Google search, but I did put 92 minerals into Google and repositories. And the only thing that the search engine optimization could spit back is um, websites and blogs that people have created associated with the red algae sea moss. So technically there is no significant value as far as science, chemistry, and biology is concerned. Again, I think it just was an association with biochemistry and understanding the unknown of the seaweed's nutritional value, but not being able to quantify it, not being able to validate it, not being able to go into a lab and say, okay, yeah, or just having an understanding that the periodic table chart is made up of elements, minerals, some gas, some solid, some liquid, some transition metals, some alkali metals, some uh, radioactive, and it's impossible to have all of these solids, liquids, gas, elements, and minerals in one little microalgae plant growing in the ocean. I got a, I question. Got a question real quick. Real quick. The, the process, you're processing for um, the algae, how much different is it than yours than, say, an, an industrial comp a company? And it, are, are they taking shortcuts to in their processing? So, because right now red algae is, is all over the it's all over the internet. It's, it's it's a new big wave. You know what happens when big big companies get a hold of something. So, what steps um, are they cutting out or short taking shortcuts to to mass produce or mass replicate as opposed to uh, say a natural um, processing at, like you would do? Mm -hmm. So it's 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 a standard and it's an extract versus the whole thing. I have a whole product. I have a few species. One is a finished product. One is a dry product. The finished product is something that is an extract, but it's done in a laboratory environment. It's done in a public kitchen, just with water um, and some essence, if you will. The essence is essential oil of um, lemon. At one point, which I use raw lemons, it didn't work because of the sugar content and acid and cinnamon extract, which is from cinnamon leaf. So this is more of a, a flavoring preservative. That's pretty much it. In industry, when they take the raw seaweed that I have, same concept, and process it, they'll rinse it, they'll clean it, prepare it, and then they'll usually um, do a volume extraction with some type of ether like alcohol or an alkali, um, like an alkali salt, a hydroxide salt, and what that does is it acts as a preservative first foremost it'll preserve the seaweed once they do that they can hydrate it and when they hydrate it then basically we understand that the molecules separate with heat and they separate with alkalized alkalized substance or alkali alkali molecules those molecules are typically sodium salts like i said um it could be something as simple as chlorine bleach believe it or not so this is used to separate what we call the polysaccharides, which are the sugars. That would be your carrageenans. Um, that would be your other esterol compounds. That would be other fucodiets. These are just sugars that naturally occur in seaweed that you don't find in plants on land. And what they're trying to do is extract that sugar minus the mineral, minus the fat, minus the crude fiber, because seaweed is, is pretty much 70% crude raw fiber. And then once that's extracted, that goes into maybe ice cream as carrageenan gel. It might go into toothpaste. 
It might go into baby food. It goes into dog food. It goes into animal products. Um, it, it goes into plant-based meat filler substitutes. So you're basically getting the extracted sugar, which is not like table sugar. It's a long chain polysaccharide, many long chains. But that sugar is what holds the gel structure of the seaweed. That's what holds the seaweed to be able to gel. <laughs> and that we realize now is great for food industry. This was tested back in the 60s. Um, Prince Edward Albert Island University did a lot of studies where they looked at Chondrus crispus, a specific species I speak about, I have, and they looked at its gel strength factor to see long-term effects in food applications. I have about 13 references that go even further in depth that just talk about analysis of that species versus another species versus another species because they're just trying to determine the strength of the gel and how well that can possibly preserve a product, uh, maybe make a binder for a cold cut meat. Uh, again, like I said, be put into a baby food product. But again, when you have the raw whole product, and that's what I have, and minimally processed, again, with no heat, which is going to degrade the uh, quality, if you will, of the leaf, you're going to get all your micronutrients. You're going to get all the polysaturated fatty acids. And it's in a it's in a gel form. It's in a liquid form, which is bioavailable. It's hydrous. It's aqueous. It's in a form that the body can actually absorb. The extracts are usually in liquid gel forms too, but again, they're going to be combined with something else. They're just one ingredient to a finished product. So industry's purpose is to basically create something or extract something for multiple multi-use across the, across the board. Mm -hmm. With that being said, how much nutritional factors lost through their process because of that? Or are, there, are there any pluses or to, to be gained from the way they do it? Uh, the bigger concern in, in the extraction process is that it results in some issues with GI, gastrointestinal disorders. Um, I have a couple studies on the con side that show that when the alkali is added, the heat and the polysaccharide is separated. So it's like a long sponge sugar chain, a long molecule being unraveled. And those molecules aren't bound to anything. They're unstable. When this goes into the gut, surprisingly, it does the complete opposite of what the whole polysaccharide does, which is what we call a mucilage or demulcent. It lubricates the digestive tract. It acts as a natural laxative, or excuse me, a natural lubricant, not a laxative. So you lose that, what we call glycoside property, and that's the result of that crude fiber being broken down. Surprisingly, it irritates the gut, um, IBS, irritable bowel syndrome, in vivo. Okay, so most of the studies have been conducted in a lab with animals. However, there are some modern day studies, I think from 2018, um, that show similar in Japan with agar extracts, as they call. Agar is another one you may have heard of or, or have, have seen, and that's another type of polysaccharide that can be extracted from um, some of the red algaes. Again, when you take that extract, you lose the nutritional value of the fat, the omega-3, the omega-6, 
I didn't mention the B vitamin profile, which are water soluble. You lose your mineral composition because the alkali acts as a um, decoupling agent. And some of the minerals, they're micro, are bound to the cell walls. They're bound to the fibers. They're bound to the crude fiber. So you're just decoupling this. Yeah. Uh, can you talk briefly about the uh, the Whole Foods takeover? The how, the, the how, what, where's, and why's, and where do we see this thing going? Yeah, Whole Foods. So with everyone's with everyone's gel, yeah, it's it's more of a concern of. What, what you have, uh, like I said, it's first to understand a business and what they do. Um, yeah, there's pop-up business people here saying, hey, you know, I'm in business just to sell this one product. Well, business, if you have something to sell, people buy. But as a nutritionist, okay, in practice, I always tell people your goal is to find something to help you sustain what your body's supposed to do when you're in trouble. And it shouldn't break the bank. And it shouldn't be something that you have to do a lot of guesswork. So it should be complete transparency. In other words, if you're going to use supplements, you shouldn't be coming through the back page of social media to find alternatives. You should be going through the doctor first. Okay, I got my meds out the way. And then work with a qualified professional that you trust that can say, yeah, red algae is good. Here are the studies that are conducted by the scientific, you know, scientists in the universities. And when taken by adults, they're usually consumed in this form. And we use these methods to determine that. And these are the standards. And they should come from places that are FDA inspected or good manufacturer practice or fitness in a state, you know, where it's done like me, where it's a kind of a what we call a juice bar operation or a public kitchen. You have a place where you do that and it can be shown and it can be validated. Um, phytosanitary records, just transparency, most important. A lot of people are making things in the home, which is fine, but the state laws dictate what you can do. For example, here in Florida, we have something called a cottage law where you can do that, but you cannot take it out of state. You can offer it to the neighbor. You can offer it at a green market. The question is who you do business with, how much do you trust them? Because this is something you're going to use as a supplement to nourish the body and it should do justice as it should. not necessarily like, wow, this is a miracle food, but yeah, I've been using this alternative supplement and I noticed this improvement with this or less of this or more of this. Not really a cause and effect, but just dynamic balance overall. There's so many benefits um, when we talk about the nutritional aspect of the seaweed in the whole food form as we see different gels, but a lot of things are not necessarily there when it comes to the processing. As I mentioned, whether it's being cooked in a pot or if it's you know, low heat, no heat. If it's sourced from clean places, um, i.e. cultivated versus wild harvest, a lot of people scream wild harvest is better because of mineral composition, but we understand it's not just about minerals. We also have to understand our oceans are contaminated. Um, our sources should be able to say, hey, look, we did third-party test this. There is mercury, there is lead, but it's at a tolerable level. It's at a level that the state of California even says that's okay. 
these things are naturally in a lot of our foods in trace amounts, and we don't want to contribute to that accumulation. The body's cumulative when it comes to toxins and contaminants and things like that, and they'll just accumulate in our fatty tissues over time. We don't want something like the seaweed to be a source of contamination accumulating in the body over time. The same holds true for conventional vegetables that we're juicing um, that are sprayed with glyphosate and other chemicals, no different. Well, let me ask you this. So your process, let's just take your process and the industry's processing. How much of the contaminants in the, in the ocean are you guys able to get rid of? Let's say, I don't know, i.e. maybe Fukushima is a bad example, but something like a Fukushima. Um, is there general concern on your, on your behalf and even on the industry's part of being able to deal with contaminants, um, whether it be oil, oil rig leaks, things of that nature? Um, is, is that a concern? Absolutely. Absolutely. These world disaster, natural disaster are always going to be concerns. And this is something I try to get people to understand. Even now, like understanding wild harvest means seasonal. So you're not going to have tons and tons and tons and tons of the same thing year round. And maybe there's a season that comes where you have less um, moisture, more sunlight, you get less production. You might have changes in fish pattern, growth pattern, uh, microalgae. Right now in South Florida, we suffer with this, what we call algae bloom, which literally just these microalgaes, which are other types of micro cyanin red bacteria, which live in the water, are just taking over because of changing environmental condition. First, foremost, important to understand the seaweed condition and growth is determined by where it is, is growing. Um, light the sunlight, the environment, okay, the sunlight environment, the water temperature, and the water current. Those are three typical factors that determine the nutritional profile, the growth rate, and the reproductive rate of the microspores within the red algaes. Um, oil spill comes. We have to understand, okay, where is, number one, my seaweed coming from? Most of the seaweed cultivation, 70, 60, 60 to 70% is in Southeast Pacific Islands, uh, Philippines, Thailand, Vietnam. The second location is, um, as I recently just looked, is in Zanzibar, uh, South Africa, Pacific, or excuse me, South Africa, Indian Ocean. Third would be some parts of South America and the Atlantic, and then the Caribbean comes in like at number four. Um, and this is all able to be traced in algaebase.org. Um, I also have some other references too for the people who want to go and dig. But if there is a contamination, let's say I source Gracilaria from Car Caribbean, um, the Caribbean Sea, and something happens in the Gulf, for me, that's it. You know, I'm not going to take any risk factors because now what I have to do personally as a business is do additional testing. Um, there may be recommendation and it's by do right. There's no thing here that says I have to do so, but um, as a business owner is something I would do by right. And maybe instead of doing a 90 day test cycle, we have to go to a 14 day test cycle. Obviously that drives up operation operational costs. Um, there's concerns for other microcontaminants in the environment. There may be um, restrictions put in place by the Department of Agriculture. Mm -hmm. that say, hey, there's no harvesting of any aquatic life or anything. So 
all of these do play a role. But right now, the way the market is, it's global. So we do have the ability here in the United States to get on our wonderful laptop and find a supplier somewhere 3,000 miles away and say, hey, get me a Connex box of this stuff to the port of Miami or the port of Everglades or whatever. Um, but again, you always have to understand source. You have to understand the history. And like I said, the seaweed cultivation that goes back to Asia is started in Japan. Mm-hmm. Their cultivation is so wide scale, it can be seen from you know outer space. Looks like little microchips lined up in the ocean and they're like little pads of, of seaweed growing. But understanding that some seaweeds also have the ability to not necessarily absorb the toxins, uh, depending upon, again, the environmental conditions. Working with the local aquatic marine fishery departments and looking out for alerts. Those are some of the things, even here, I, you know, go out, I look at the ocean, I look at the water alerts, being able to understand um, when we see an algae bloom, is it attributed to people? Do we contaminate the water? Is it chemicals that we now wear in our body that we didn't wear a decade or two ago? Uh, sunscreens that we see break down the coral reefs, it's no different. Algaes mutate. It's part of their genetic structure and it's part of survival. That's what they do. We as humans, marine algae and fungi all come from the same order. And one of the genetic functions of that order is to replicate, is to reproduce life and do it well. And they've been doing it well before we have been here on this earth since the beginning of time. But again, the concern is source. Understanding your source, was it, like you said, was it a site of contamination, radioactivity? What is the type of algae? And then what are the methods? You could be getting good quality algae, um, but going through a, a source that just has poor standards, meaning that the country doesn't have any kind of uh, standard on what's considered food grade and what's considered agricultural grade. So, so, so these are some of the things that would matter to me and should matter um, to consumers and other people. Um, final question, because I know we're under, we're under time constraints. In the seaweed community, why is there so much dissension and disinformation? Yeah, so seaweed, it's, it's, it's the unknown, right? I think when we think about seaweed, the first thing that comes to mind is green slime. Ovalacta or sea lettuce. It's typically what we see washing up on a beach. And that's it. So now to hear, wait a minute, there's something in the water that doesn't taste bad. It's not green. It's not slimy. It's going to be good for me. Okay. I'm going to take this and run with it. Also, with my understanding, if there's a lack of understanding in just general subject of chemistry, biology, um, marine life you have to understand there's thousands of species thousands over six thousand that we look at to date right now and those six thousand covered the three families and then the 12 classes and all the orders and that doesn't include like i said mutations adaptations right now people are in a place where we understand that alternative health is any and everything that doesn't come from a doctor that's not a pill that's not a pharmaceutical that's not a shot and if it means you know going into a cave to get shilajit or going into the deep forest to get mushrooms or going to the bottom of the ocean to get seaweed i think people are accepting this 
because it's in demand without thinking, okay, what is the reality of this? Wait a minute, this is not new. There is a system that's been put in place before medical 1930s, 1940s. There is a system uh, ancient that goes back to the beginning, which has been respected by many indigenous tribes. And that right there is the understanding of disagreement because it's always been there. So, hey, one group here understands something because of how they use it. And then another group understands something because of, of, the, of its value and how they use it. And I think that same kind of holds a little true with the seaweed. Now, yeah, when we fast forward to social media 2021, um, the downside is it allows you to say and do anything you want. It creates unaccountability. And we tend, as humans, because we're hardwired, it creates a, a pacification for soothingness when we don't understand something. So if we're unwilling to go do or say, well, you know, let me pick up the phone and call a marine biologists, which we're not going to do. It's just not in our human nature. We're not hardwired to think that way. We tend to accept what we get from the community we create with the ones we trust. There's so much out there, which is inaccurate in a lot of things as I study as a, as a, as a student right now um, with common things we just thought were true that are not, or we don't think deeper about the truth of it until we begin to analyze and say, okay, wait a minute, this doesn't make sense. That can't be. So even though we see it big now with seaweed and in the whole seaweed community, a lot of controversy, um, the source of where you get the information from. And even there, oh, well, you know, the information is biased. It's not biased. Um, no matter what country, what continent you step on, there's scientists indiscriminately trying to do the work to be in a position to discover, to, to take theories and make them facts, to take hypotheses and bust them and say, this is truth. And that's not based on um, how tall, how fat, the color of a, of a, of a person's skin. You know, a lot of times I hear that the research, the information is only based on where it comes from, which is true, but what do we really consider the credibility of the information and the source? You know, what do we consider to be a higher source of information? Is it scholastic? Is it a university? Is it an institute? Is it an organization that shares other people who are like-minded individuals and peers that say, yeah, I agree with him, even though... I don't agree with their school of thought. I agree with the subject matter. So it's not what I call a logical fallacy. In other words, you're not arguing with the person. You're still arguing the point hmm. in difference of what you see, you know, in, in the forefront. And I think this is what, again, social media, modern media, socialism, modern day has kind of created where we get that kind of back and forth. We couldn't really do that a while ago. You know, we had to take information, accept it, and then say, well, if I don't believe it, I have to prove the people wrong. I have to I have to show and prove. And I'm not, you know, I'm not proving anything. The work, the work has been done. I'm just taking all the information and kind of surfacing it where I can as a conduit to the ones who really need to know. Okay. And I've seen some effect. It's not been a lot, but there's been very little um acceptance to say, wow, okay, you know, this is one way I can get this information. So it's indiscriminate. There's no room for error to say, well, this is this, this is this. The first thing, if we all went in a boat 
and I stuck my hand in the ocean and pulled something up, you have to say what it is. And you can't say what it is because your tribe identifies it as this and that tribe identifies it as that and that tribe. We all have to have a common name or what they call the scientific name or the Latin name. So no matter where we are in the world, no matter what language I speak, whether it's linguist, click, we all say, oh, yeah, that is digital lantana. You know, it's not a, a leafy green or a green leaf or a leaf green ball because that's that's human nature. And with this language barrier, it's something we have to suffer with as humans. Um, but again, when we have the commonality understanding, we can be wise enough to look past that because I think that's where we're at now with the, well, this is this, this is this, this is proper identification. We got over 6,000 species and we're only dealing with one, some maybe two. And I'm like, you got to first understand what you're dealing with, proper positive identification, what it looks like. If you can't see that, try to look at some other in the family, other red algaes. And then after identification, you're spot on. Oh, I can identify that by the fronds, by the size, by the thickness, by the texture. Oh, no, that looks similar, but that's, that can't be it. Then that allows you to know for sure when you go back and you look at what we call a heckle plate, which is a example or a reference of something like a frog or a certain species when we're out in nature trying to identify things. Hey, this is a coconut cream mango okay i have a, a plate or a diagram of that actual mango preserved in wood or in resin and i can use that as an identifying agent when i'm out in the field to say okay yeah it does have the blush it does have this size shape all the characteristics are there to help you with identification and we can do that we can collect seaweeds and algaes and we can send them to different uh, marine stations and labs or universities and ask them for proper identification that's what they're in business for. There's no need to argue. So I think, again, when we go to the extreme of <laughs> making noise for no reason, it's because we just make too much um, noise to show that we're not using what matters. And it's credibility. Like I said, what matters is it doesn't matter the source. Credibility is when you say, OK, yeah, the peer can say, even though I don't like this person or whatever, or I don't agree with their laws, or I don't like the way they look, but the information that they share is accurate. Yes, we concur. And I think that's where we have an issue getting past with the modern day information around the seaweed community. Okay, okay. Well, I'm not gonna hold you. Uh, we, we're gonna follow up on this uh, next week. Yes, sir. We'll, we'll get more in depth. So once again, um, I thank you for your time and energy. Shout yourself out. Where can they find you? All that good stuff. Yeah, yeah, of course. Indeed. Congo. Some people know me as AKA Rob Diaz. You can literally throw my government in Google. Nature Roots is the business. N-A-C-H-R-R-O-O-T-Z. Google Nature Roots and everything will pop up. Instagram, the website. If you want to learn more, I have a whole blog set up on seaweed. I've got a podcast. I'm getting ready to create a specialized website on seaweed file archives. That's going to be late this fall. So all you got to do is just plug in my name, Congo Robert Diaz, and there's a ton of information out there for you guys. All right, my man, my man Congo doing it as, as always. Um, so, yeah, I, I'll lock in with you um, for next week, and then we'll get way more in-depth and just let you just run run crazy with it. So, indeed. as always, I thank you again. Thank you, bro. It's my pleasure. It's my pleasure, indeed. All right, cool. All right, then. 
All right, sorry about the uh, the time frame, guys. It's my fault. I overslept and I'm in a fair amount of pain. So um, with that being said, um, as you do me a favor on your way out to take the like button as I read the script. Um, once again, Morningstar Show featuring me. I had a special guest tonight, Congo Nature. Uh, we're talking about seaweed and sea algae. Um, you can always find us on, on www.onthewakeofradio.com, 24-7-365. Shout out to my producer, um, Cindy Ashby. Three plays. You can always find us at SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google, and Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and Google Play for the replays. All right. Um, as always, I'm pulling this. This is going back to Patreon. So you guys have a good night. Peace.